Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, today, uh, we are so very happy to have uh, William Friedkin here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm sure for everyone in this room, including myself, he has brought us countless hours of entertainment and education and thrill. And uh, we are so ha very happy to have him here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome William Friedkin. Hello. I just thought I'd bring this red chair up because I saw it over there and it looks so cool. Isn't that nice? Wow. That I mean, some of you are going to be looking at that, I'm sure, because it caught my attention. Uh, I wrote this book uh, almost by accident. First, I'd like to welcome you all today. Uh, appreciate your coming here. I, and I have a question for you. Is that place next door really one of the best burgers in L.A.? <laughs> like it said, no. They're lying like this? It says best burger in L.A. Yeah, I have never s seen a burger joint that didn't have that sign. So I wondered if perhaps one of them was true. About four years ago, I got a phone call from a man named Richard Pine, uh, who runs uh, uh, an author's agency. Um, uh, what the uh, hell was it called? Um, that's a great way to start out. Uh, I, you know, it'll come to me. Things take about five minutes to sail into my recognition zone. But uh, he, uh, he is an author's agent. And he got my phone number through a mutual friend of his and my wife's. And um, he called me out of the blue, introduced himself, and he said, would you be interested in writing an autobiography? And I said, no. And he said, well, why not? And I said, because I wouldn't be interested in reading it. And he said, well, what if I were to tell you that I had five 
of the leading publishers in New York that would publish your memoirs if you were to write them. And I said, well, that would certainly <laughs> get my attention. So he invited me to New York where I met these five, um, the heads of these five companies, and I had lunch with each of them, and then Richard Pine uh, and I uh, spoke about it. And the guy who really opened the door for me on how to write this book was uh, a guy called Jonathan Burnham, who is the publisher at HarperCollins. He's a very nice and interesting guy, and none of the other publishers gave me a clue as to how to go about this. Um, but Mr. Burnham said, look, I want you to write about your life. Um, not in a way that you just say, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, but just tell about how you felt about everything important that happened to you, or everything that you can get into a book. And that opened the door for me. It was about feelings, not simply um, events. And, and so I set out to do that. And I wrote this book like all over the world, except the best burger joint in LA. But I, I, I wrote in some other restaurants and airports and on airplanes and hotels, uh, in various cities while I was doing other things. I wrote the book in longhand, uh, in these moleskin books, uh, like Marcel Proust. Uh, there's the only guy that understood the joke there. Um, possibly, arguably, the greatest writer who ever lived. But he wrote in longhand in moleskin books. Uh, they weren't moleskin. They were hardcover black books. But I filled about 12 moleskin books uh, with just various ramblings, because I never kept diaries, except diaries that said what time I, you know, had to go to the dentist or wherever. But so I had no diaries. I had only these vague memories floating around. And I started to write. And something would come to me from maybe 30 or 40 years ago. And I'd write as much about that as I could remember. And it wasn't a lot initially. And then I, the next day, write about something else. And I'd write as much about that as I could remember. And then uh, maybe get other memories about the earlier stuff and go back and add to that stuff. Or even subtract because I realized I had remembered certain details wrong. And um, so it w I constantly rewrote it over a three-year period. And I found that it's very true what L.P. Hartley in his novel The Go-Between uh, wrote, which is that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And I was writing about my past, for the most part, from the perspective of the present. And often, we all have some sort of uh, a machine that cleans things up, or, you know, uh, something that will go onto autopilot, and when you realize that you've just written something that if you put it out there or leave it out there is going to be embarrassing, well, something takes place in your mind's eye that causes you to... <laughs> 
want to change it. And I had to resist that. I decided to be as honest as I could, even if it meant that I was the butt of the joke or that I had screwed up. And constantly, I was uh, thinking about, like, who in the hell would give a damn about a book about my life? I mean, I certainly wouldn't. You know, uh, what is a what the hell is a film director in the, you know, in the greater uh, concept of the world? You know, what have I contributed to mankind or to the betterment of humanity? Nothing. I mean, that's the conclusion that I reached, and so I. Uh, 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 no, it's unfortunate. I, I'm sure many of you have, have felt this way. I'm not revealing something that can be totally foreign to you, but I thought, how am I going to make this stuff um, in any way uh, interesting to people? So I decided to tell the absolute truth about. Um, the things that I remembered, and where I made mistakes, and how these things um, uh, found their way into um, uh, either success or failure. And where they resulted in failure, I wrote about that and said that. Uh, and there's a wonderful quote that inspired me by the, from Samuel Beckett, who wrote a little couplet in which he said, fail fail again, fail better next time. And that was kind of a, uh, a mantra uh, for me in remembering my story. Um, I wrote also about the process. What does a director do? Have any of you ever directed a, a movie? Uh, you, a couple of you have. What basically I've done as a, who are you pointing to? Who? Oh, you've directed a film? Then? Well, a dad, that's a film. Hell yes. This is some of the best films today. But I wrote about what a director does, and basically this is what a director does. Um, you have to have a concept of the film you're going to do. If you don't have a concept of what it is, if you can't see the whole film in your mind's eye, forget it. You know, because it, it's very difficult to discover it as you go. Now, I'm talking about cinema. I'm not talking about the kind of things that are called movies or something today. Um, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, there was a time, believe it or not, in this country when cinema was an art form, you know, instead of simply... Uh, uh, about zombies, vampires, werewolves, uh, based on comic books or video games. Believe it or not, there was a time when films had the same power to move you as literature. Um, and so the first thing a director of a film has to do is envision the film. And then the next thing is how you select your collaborators, you know, at, at every step of the game, not just the actors, but the, uh, the film editors, the cinematographers, the prop men. Um, everybody working on that film has to in some way be on the same page with the director or somehow or other it's going to all bollocks up and so 
your choice of your collaborators is the next important thing you do after you've decided to do this or that story. Um, and if you make a mistake in the casting, in a key role, it's over. The whole house of cards comes down. Um, and I've always believed that, what I just said to you, but when I examined my process, I realized that over the years, I've, I don't audition actors. I haven't auditioned an actor or an actress or read them f for the part. I go totally on instinct. For example, Roy Scheider, who is in The French Connection. Uh, my casting director brought him to me. He had never made a film. He was an off-Broadway actor. He came into my office and sat down, and I said, uh, Hello, Roy. Hi. I said, um, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm in an off-Broadway play. I said, what, what is it? He said, it's a Jean Genet play. I said, well, what role do you play in it? And he said, I play a cigar-smoking nun. And I said, interesting. Okay, you, you're hired. <laughs> and he said, what? You don't want me to read? I said, there's nothing for you to read. This is a movie where guys just grunt and scream and yell and say, get your hands in the air. And there's nothing to read. They just run around. The whole thing is a chase movie. And you look like the guy that, you know, I'm casting you to play. And that literally was it. On the other hand in that picture, Gene Hackman, I didn't want him at all. I had no interest in Gene Hackman for The French Connection, right up through the end of the shooting of the film. I didn't think he was the right guy. Every studio turned down The French Connection at least twice. And 20th Century Fox, which finally made it, um, the head of the studio was a guy named Dick Zanuck at that time. And he said to me, who, who do you see in this? He said, look, I got a million and a half dollars hidden away in a drawer over here. I'm going to get fired in about six months, so you better start the picture fast. If you can make it for a million and a half, go ahead. And we had a budget then that was just under three million dollars. And uh, when I started to explain that to Mr. Zanuck, my producer, Phil D'Antoni, kicked me under the table. And he said, oh yeah, we can do it for a million and a half, sure. He said, well, who do you see in it? And I, I said, Jackie Gleason. Do, do any of you know Jackie Gleason? Okay. If you don't, get the hell out of here, would you? He was a great actor and comedian, and he was exactly the guy I was looking for. He was a big, heavy-set Irish guy with a dark sense of humor. We used to call those guys black Irishmen, which had nothing to do with the color of their skin. It had to do with a kind of morose, brooding quality. And that was the character as I envisioned him, based on the actual cop. But I wanted Gleason for that part, and I called him out of the blue and sent him the script we had, and he agreed to do it. And Dick Zanuck said to me, we're not going to do this picture with Jackie Gleason. I said, why not? He said, he made a film for us uh, a year or two ago. It was a silent movie about a clown. It was called Gigo. He said, it's the biggest disaster in the history of Fox. So we're not going to do it with him. 
So um, I said, well, what about, the, a film had come out then called Joe with Peter Boyle. And Peter Boyle played a bigot who ran around with a baseball bat hitting black people, and, and he, but he was great. That was like his first film, and he was really uh, evil-looking and menacing and uh, great screen presence. And so we went to Peter Boyle, and he read the script that we had, which wasn't any good, but he, he said, look, for the rest of my career, I, I think I, all I really want to do is romantic comedies. <laughs> I, I imagine that he looked at himself in the mirror in the morning and saw Cary Grant. But um, many years later, Mel Brooks looked at him and saw young Frankenstein, which is how I saw him. Uh, but he turned it down. And then he was on this television series for nine years called Everyone Loves Raymond, Everybody Loves Raymond. And I, I got to know the producer of that show very well. And he said, there wasn't one day on the set of Everybody Loves Raymond that Peter Boyle didn't collar somebody and tell them that he had turned down the French Connection. <laughs> Gene Hackman was kind of the last man standing. Uh, he had never had a starring role. Would you like to sit down, sir? You sure? That's all right. That's a cool chair. Uh, uh, I had only seen him in a, a picture. Great. He played Warren Beatty's brother in um, Bonnie and Clyde. But he was wonderful. But it was a supporting role, and this, of course, was the lead. And I never could get my head around Gene doing that part. I met with Gene, uh, and I, I think I actually fell asleep at the lunch meeting we had. And, but we had to start the picture. Zanuck was now about to get fired. So at the last minute, I agreed to do the film with Gene Hackman. And on the first day of shooting, uh, there's a scene where these two cops interrogate a drug suspect, a dealer. And they had to push him around. And there was a routine they used to use on these suspects. And I had gone around with these cops. I had ridden around with them. And I wrote down in a notebook everything they said and did. And I put that into the script. And I had Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider interrogating this um, young African-American actor. And they had to slap him around. And Hackman couldn't do that. He couldn't get physical with this guy, and he had to. His character had to get physical. But Gene was from a small town in Illinois called Danville, which had a, a, a history of racism bubbling under the surface, and he tried to get as far away from that as he could. And we did 36 takes of that scene in a police car with the two cops flanking the suspect. 36 takes we, the whole day. We looked at the rushes the next day and they were terrible. There wasn't one decent take. And Hackman, I let all the actors see the rushes and Hackman saw the rushes and he quit the picture. After the first day of shooting, he just quit because he knew he wasn't doing it. And 
he was told by his agent that if he quit, he would own the picture, you know, and he'd have to pay for it, uh, everything that they had in it. And so he stayed on, fortunately, a gift from the movie god. But I still couldn't connect with him in how to capture the kind of character that he was playing. Eddie Egan, who was the original cop, who's in our film is called Popeye Doyle, was like, he, in person he reminded me of Cassius in, in Julius Caesar, who is described as a thundercloud who could weep or kill. And that was Eddie Egan. He was a guy who had a great sense of humor in the streets in the most dangerous precincts in New York, and he was he was very menacing in the street because that was the only way he could survive. But he, he could also be in many ways funny and he, and he was able to relieve the tension of that job, narcotics detective, with humor. And Gene, it seemed to me, couldn't get there. And as a director, what you're doing with the actors at that stage of the film, and there are several stages in the making of a film. The second or third stage is you're on the set with the actors. And what the director has to do is become kind of like a psychiatrist. Now, I've never been in psychiatry. I have a sense of what it might be, and that's the way I operate with actors. Instead of rehearsing them, I'll sit with them and just talk about ourselves. I will try to get them to re reveal certain things about their own histories, and I will in turn give up a lot of my own secrets. And um, I did that I've done that with all the actors I've ever worked with so that because what the actor is relying on at all times, I mean in a decently written script, is his or her sense memory of what made them laugh or cry or be scared or what was it in them that would provoke an emotion. And as the director, you have to find that out so that you can use that in a scene where they may have to cry or laugh or be frightened or whatever. And you use the actor's sense memory. And I found out, for example, from Hackman that he hated his father. And he didn't have much contact with his father in Danville. And that registered with me because it immediately told me that he probably hated all authority figures. And even though I was 10 years younger than him, I was the authority figure on this set, the director. Realizing that he hated authority and could get riled up when talking about his father, I tried to become as much like his father as I could. I got in his face. I did things with him that I've never had to do with an actor for a, an entire picture at all. Instead of, you know, like if you shoot a take and you want another one with the actor, the director normally will gently go to the actor and say, that was good. 
But let's, let's try one more, maybe do it a little faster or a little slower, or uh, maybe you can take a pause here, or there. and you'll be very gentle with them. With Hackman, I was, I would say, he'd finish a take and I would say, oh, cut, Jesus, cut, this is terrible. What the hell's going on here? I'd say it in front of the whole crew. And I'd say, you call that acting? I'd say, you, you better find a day job. And that was our relationship for the entire picture. I, I had been able to focus his anger, not against the drug smugglers, but against me. And at least I was able to get him so riled up and had the crew ready to start shooting. The second I gave him a high sign, I'd say, okay, let's do it now. And he was really pissed off. But he'd go into the scene and he would become this character that he was not. Gene Hackman himself had none of that on the surface. But it was there within him from his childhood. Now, in telling you that story, I'm not telling you that I, I'm responsible for his performance. No, I simply provided an atmosphere where he could get on the same page with me about this character. His performance is great. He won an Academy Award, and I think justly, he became one of the really best actors in America. And by no means can I tell you that because of what I did, that's why he excels in the movie. But it was a subtle sort of acceleration toward what I felt that character had to become, and it worked. With Linda Blair in The Exorcist, uh, we had looked at several thousand young girls, 11, 12, we could find no one. I didn't personally see that many. I would see, I might have seen maybe 500 taped auditions of these young girls from all over the country, from Chicago, LA, New York, uh, San Francisco, wherever. And I came to a conclusion at one point that we could not make the picture. We started to look at 16-year-old girls who looked younger and 15-year-old girls. And always in the back of my mind, not only was I um, concerned that a young, by the way, that uh, Richard Pine's company is called Inkwell Management. <laughs> See, that, that comes right in the middle of something else. I, there's nothing I can do about it. When I wrote my book, I was able to reach for it and put it in. But when I'm talking like to you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sometimes five minutes behind my memory. Anyway, uh, I reached the conclusion that we would never find a young woman who could act, convincingly act, a 12-year-old possessed by a demon. More importantly, I didn't think we'd ever find a young girl anywhere near that age who could survive the experience without being scarred for life. It was that difficult a role. And I, would, I basically had given up and I thought, we had delayed the start of the film, and I thought, we're never gonna find this girl. And one day, my assistant in New York uh, called me 
rang my intercom and said, there's a woman out here named Eleanor Blair, and she doesn't have an appointment, but she's brought her 12-year-old daughter with her. Will, will you see her? And I thought, why not? Because everything else had bombed out. And Linda, the instant she walked through the door, I knew she was it. That's it. Like with Roy Scheider. The instant she came through the door and she sat down with her mother. She was probably on a chair like that. Uh, she sat down with her mother and I said, uh, Linda, uh, do you know anything about The Exorcist? And she said, yes, I read the book. She was a straight-A student in Westport, Connecticut, and she used to train horses at the age of 12, uh, you know, for show jumping and stuff like that, and she had won blue ribbons at Madison Square Garden and other key uh, places, and um, she was totally together and smart. Not beautiful in any classic sense, but really a bright, charming young girl. And she said, yeah, I read the book. I said, well, what's the, what is The Exorcist about? And she said, well, it's about a little girl who gets possessed by a devil and does a whole bunch of bad things. And I said, well, like, like what? What sort of bad things? And she said, uh, well, um, she uh, hits her mother across the face and uh, she pu pushes a man out of her bedroom window and she masturbates with a crucifix. I looked over her mother, who was smiling. <laughs> and uh, so I said, do you know what that means? She says, what? I said, to masturbate. I glanced at her mother again and still smiling. And she said, Linda said, sure, it's, it's like jerking off, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, have you ever done that? And she said, sure, haven't you? <laughs> and I was doing constantly in my work, but uh, no, she, uh, uh, she got it. That was it. That was her audition. I knew she could handle the material, that she could, would not, was not going to be freaked out about it. She was comfortable with it. And, and at her age level, she understood enough of it that we could do it. And then I would ask her the same kinds of questions. What, what was the saddest day in your life? And with her, it happened to be the day that her grandfather died after a long illness. And I would refer to that from time to time in provoking her sense memory of sadness or anger or whatever she had to show. And she's been interviewed many times and she will tell you as she's told interviewers, she didn't really understand everything that I asked her to do, but she trusted me and I made the whole thing a game for her. I just made it a game, and when she would say to me, oh, oh, I can't do that, or I can't say that, I would say, no milkshake today. And she'd say, oh, come on. You know, and you, if you look at the rushes of the exorcist, you see that sometimes after one of the most horrific things that she had to do in this picture, I say cut, but the camera doesn't cut right away. The, the cameraman starts to discuss the shot, 
with somebody and he doesn't cut right away and you could see a prop man coming in and handing Linda a milkshake. <laughs> After she's done, done one of the most horrific imaginable scenes, then she starts laughing and sucking on a milkshake. So uh, in both those instances and in almost every other one, um, I've been fortunate and blessed by the movie God. Uh, in giving me people or bringing me people that I would never have really considered or ever want to cast in these roles. Another was Fernando Rey in The French Connection. He's the guy that played the French drug smuggler. And my casting director then, he was not really a casting director, he was, he wrote for the Village Voice. Um, I'm sure you all have heard of that. It was like the LA Weekly, but in the village in <laughs> New York City. Uh, and uh, he was a critic for the Village Voice, but he knew every actor around. In fact, he discovered Whoopi Goldberg in some small out-of-the-way club and, and many other actors. And he brought me a wonderful bunch of people like Scheider and Tony Lobianco for the French Connection and I had a shorthand with him um, about talking about actors because I had some of the same references of films that we both loved and I said to Bob Wiener was his name I said Bob let's for this French guy let's get that guy who was in Belle de Jour Luis Bunuel's uh, Belle de Jour uh, he had that like um, uh, four-day growth of beard. He was sort of a dark-complected guy, and uh, he was the, the bad guy in Belle de Jour. And uh, you, you all know who Louis Bunuel was? If you don't, you have to leave the building immediately. <laughs> but um, uh, in, in Wiener said, you mean Pierre Clementi? I said, no, not Pierre Clementi. The other guy who was his partner, and I, don't, what's it, I didn't know his name. And Wiener uh, got back to me, he said, oh yeah, I've, that guy, was named, his name was Fernando Ray, and uh, he's a great actor. And I, I said, okay, hire him. He said, don't you want to meet with him first? I said, no, just hire him. So I went to Kennedy Airport to pick up Fernando Ray when he arrived in New York. And in those days, you could go, you know, right up to the gate and meet somebody. And I see these people coming off, and a guy comes off that I recognize, but it wasn't the guy I had in mind for the French Connection. It wasn't the guy from Belle de Jour. But I had seen him on film, and I thought some other Bunuel films. And so I get it, help him with his bags and we get to the car and he had this little goatee, a, a very aristocratic goatee and a mustache and uh, he's not the guy. And uh, the, the guy he was playing was a, a longshoreman from Marseille, France, worked on the docks and later became the number one drug smuggler out of France. So I'm talking to him, realizing this is the wrong guy. And I said to him, you know, the, the guy you're supposed to play, I mean, he, he's, he's got a four-day growth of beard. He said, oh, I could, I could never shave my goatee. <laughs> I, I said, why not? He said, uh, 
I have sores all over my face. You'd never want to see my face shaven. He said, and he said, by the way, you know, I'm not French, I'm Spanish. The name of the movie was The French Connection. And uh, he said, but I speak enough French and I've worked with Bunuel and I can, I can dub it all later because I don't really speak French. And uh, so I get him to his hotel and in those days they used to have phone booths in the lobbies of hotels. And I called the production office, Bob Weiner. I said, you idiot, you cast the wrong guy. He said, what do you mean? I said, this isn't the guy from Belle de Jour. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's the wrong guy. He said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, find the right guy, fire this guy, and hire the guy I'm talking about. By the time I got to the office, he had learned that the actor we were looking for was named Francisco Rabal, who also happened to be Spanish, did not speak a word of English, um, and was not available. So we went with Fernando Rey <laughs> as, as a fallback. And from day one, I thought the picture would be a disaster because he was absolutely not the guy I wanted for that role. And again, those of you who've seen the film, you see that he's just wonderful. Uh, he did something completely different with the role that I had never expected. As much as I've told you, you first have to envision the picture, you first have to see it in your mind's eye. I did with that picture, but I cast the wrong guy. I didn't want Hackman, I didn't want uh, Fernando Ray, and the rest is history. I mean, because of those two guys, I've got a little statue on the shelf in my uh, abode. Uh, and so I've had, my career has been that way right up to the last film I did, which was Killer Joe. I was going to cast Ellen Page or Jennifer Lawrence in, in the young, uh, young girl role in that, young woman's role in that film. And one day, my casting director said, sent me a video, an audition that was done on home video, uh, that, you know, that was, uh, emailed to her and she bounced it to me. It was an audition by someone called Juno Temple who was auditioning for the role of Dottie in Killer Joe, um, a young girl from East Texas. And she was auditioning with her 10-year-old brother who was playing Joe. And the, and the brother wasn't bad either, by the way. But she was absolutely great. And I called my casting director, Denise Chamian, and I said, this is it. Hire this. She's wonderful. And so we hired her. And then she came to my house, and I met her. And she said, oh, it's so nice to meet you, Mr. Friedkin. She had a thick English accent. I didn't, I'd never seen her in a film. She had done a few films in England, Atonement and other pictures, that, but I had never seen her. Now she comes in, she's got a thick British accent, but on the audition tape, 
It's a perfect East Texas accent. And so I don't know how the hell she did it. But if someone had told me, let's audition this British girl for this part, let's not even go there. And I told the two other actors in the film, Matthew McConaughey and uh, Thomas Hayden Church, who were both from East Texas, that if she ever got mispronounced uh, or got one word wrong to just stop you know and uh, tell her just tell her and that never happened she never blew the accent and she is just a great little actress very accomplished really wonderful and again a gift from the movie God to me because you know I feel so close to her and I, I so admire what she did and I would never have cast her under any sort of normal circumstances. Uh, I guess I could go on with a lot more stories I, but I, I'm going to ask you if you have any questions but before I do, um, before I do, I'm going to leave you with a little joke about an actor who is doing Hamlet on the stage and it's clearly probably the best play ever written in the English language or arguably so and yet this actor is getting booed constantly by the audience every time he comes out with some of these great speeches the audience boos to every person in the room is booed. Now the third act comes and he comes out, makes his first entrance in the third act and he says, he, he, he gets booed immediately and he stops the play. And he comes down to the footlights and he says to the audience, what do you want from me? I didn't write this shit. <laughs> well, I wrote this shit. You guys have any questions about that? Thank you. I, I might have I might have written this too if I was a woman. This looks interesting. Author of a person of interest. She's nominated for a. a she was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And I'm not. And I'm on not the yet. same shelf with her. Not yet. Yes, sir. Um, I've heard this urban legend, uh, I haven't really researched it on, yep. on the net, but um, there's a urban legend that in some of your rushes, things showed up that were very, that weren't supposed to show up once the film was developed. Is that is that urban legend or is that, did some of that really happen? It's either a myth or a lie. No, nothing ever showed up that wasn't supposed to. I've heard that stuff too. There are whole books, are, some of them are probably on these shelves, about all of the so-called uh, things that had happened on the exorcist, the exorcist cursed and all that. It's, it's all complete bullshit. One strange thing did happen, well, a couple. <laughs> Maybe two dozen. <laughs> One morning at four o'clock in the morning, we were shooting on the interior set of the girls' bedroom. And um, it was on a sound stage on the west side of New York. 
I got a call at 4 a.m. from the production manager. He woke me up and he said, don't bother to come in today. And I said, why, am I fired? And he said, no, but the set is burning to the ground. And this was at four o'clock in the morning. I said, what happened? He said, there was one, there's a night watchman who sits out there and nothing's ever happened. And he, this morning he sees smoke coming from under the door of the sound stage. And he opened the door and the set is in flames. And so I ran down there and I could see the set was all burning up and we had really expensive art on the walls and expensive furniture because it was like a, a Federalist house in Georgetown. And we copied one, I mean, right down to every single detail. And the paintings were real. There was a, um, a Degas watercolor. There, there was some immensely expensive art and it was all going up in smoke. And um, the insurance company actually paid off on the theory that it was an old sound stage and there were birds uh, flying around in the rafters and a bird may have flown into a light box. I, I don't know who came up with that theory, but the picture was shut down for uh, almost two months. Uh, and we had, with everyone on the payroll, and we had to rebuild the set from scratch. That happened. Then there was another time that Jason Miller, who played Father Karras in The Exorcist, his wife was on the beach, uh, on Rockaway Beach. It was November, so it was very cold in New York on the beach. And there were very few people there. And Jason's wife had their little uh, young son playing on the beach and way the hell off in the distance a guy was doing wheelies on his motorbike and for no reason on earth the guy came roaring down right where Jason son and his mother were playing and he went full into young Jordan Miller and who had a 50-50 chance to live and this was right in the middle of our shooting with Jason in The Exorcist. And Jason moved into the Jesuit residence in um, New York at uh, Fordham University. And they, he just prayed with the Jesuits for the life of his son, who was, you know, at death's door for um, a couple of weeks. And he survived. Um, there were other things of that nature uh, that certainly had never happened to me on, on other films. Completely unpredictable and bizarre things, but nothing on the film. Just these weird incidents. Uh, the whole history of The Exorcist was plagued with similar stuff. You had a question, sir? Yeah. Something that I haven't read it just no, Howard Hawks had nothing to do. That's an urban legend too. I was dating a young woman named Kitty Hawks, who was Howard's daughter. And she hadn't seen her father for 17 years. She was living in New York. She was a fashion model. She had been on the cover of Vogue. And uh, 
One day she gets a phone call from her father, Howard, out in California, and he said, why don't you come out here? I'd, I'd love to see you after 17 years. And uh, she was a baby when she last saw him. And um, so she said, can I bring my boyfriend? And that was me. So we went out, we came to California to meet Howard Hawks. And it was a restaurant on La Brea called Chianti, which I think is gone. And Mr. Hawks was there. And uh, we came in, and he, he was about 80-something years old, but he looked like a baby, you know? <laughs> he was completely bald, but no lines in his face, and he had the kind of reddish complexion of a baby. And he stood up, he was a very tall man, and he had a bag of some, he had a bag shopping bag, but you know, just like you wrap stuff in. And uh, he said, I got something for you. And he handed it to Kitty, and it was, she opened it, and it was two men's shirts, which I have now. Uh, I, I guess he wanted a son. He did have a son, though. But at that luncheon meeting, I must have told this story because it got bent out of shape so far. At this lunch meeting, Mr. Hawks said to me, so what's the film you just finished directing, young man? And I said, The Boys in the Band. And he said, what's that about? And I told him. And he said, you don't want to make films like that. He said, you don't want to make movies like that. You want to make action pictures. You want to make films that have good guys and bad guys and very clearly show the audience who's the good guy and the bad guy. And um, the next film I made was The French Connection, which blurred the line between the good guy and the bad guy. But I've seen interviews where Howard Hawks actually told an interviewer that he suggested I make The French Connection. <laughs> it wasn't even in the air then. And it was just a, a, an accident that I happened to do that next, which you, you can read about in my book. But Howard Hawks did, in fact, take credit for telling me to to do that. Um, before I take another question, I would like to introduce you to a young man I didn't know he was going to be here uh, tonight, but he is, and I'd like you to meet him. He's a great film editor, and I've worked with him on several uh, of my films. I'd like to have you meet him. His name's Darren Navarro. Darren, come on up and say hello. You... Hi, Darren. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, this young man has uh, been an enormous influence on, on the work that I've done, and he is a great film editor. And you, some of you, or one or two of you, might have a question about the art of film editing, which to me is where it all happens. As I stand before you with all the films that I've directed and have written about and whatever, I really believe that everything that I've ever shot is nothing but raw material for the cutting room. All the great performances or not so great performances or whatever is to me nothing but the gathering up, like notes, of the raw material for where the film is actually shaped and comes to life or not. And that's in the cutting room. 
And so you might want, somebody might want to know a little bit more about that. Do you have anything you wanted to say? No, no, I came to listen to you. <laughs> my, you know, my, my pleasure in, in working with Billy is that, is that, you know, I work with a lot of different directors, but when I work with Billy, I, I get an opportunity to kind of, um, it's, it's part of my continuing education. I get to, it's, it's film school in the best possible sense. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, and so I just came to get a little bit more. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, could you talk about maybe, I mean, there's, there's Boys in the Band and then uh, the last two are Crazy Let's Plays. Mm -hmm. Did you ever talk about editing play, stage, former stage plays? Is there well, I've done, I think, I, I think I, I'm not sure how many films I've done. It says how many in the book. I think it's about... I think 16. 16. Features. Or, feature yeah. films, and I think four of them are plays, but I was drawn to them because of the scripts, because of the material. That's the first thing usually that draws me is the story and the characters. And then, uh, so the other plays I've done are The Boys in the Band and Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. And then Bug and Killer Joe, which were originally plays, but I, I saw them as very cinematic, and really brilliant writing. I think he's, if he isn't the best playwright in America today, he's way ahead of who's ever in second place. He's a great American playwright. And uh, I discovered his plays a number of years ago in extreme off-Broadway situations. And uh, they, they were, he and I had the same outlook on life. We had the same viewpoint. Now those of you who've seen those films might consider it a dark viewpoint, but to, to, to me and Let's, it's reality. That's what we see, and that's why I've been drawn to his work. Not the one for which he's most successful, which is August Osage County. I thought that was very good. He won the Pulitzer Prize for that. Uh, but it, wa it just wasn't my cup of tea. Yes, sir, back there. Um, a few years ago, they showed, they had a retrospective of your work at the Arrow. A few years ago, they showed the source work. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you had said at that time you weren't, wasn't, on, wasn't available. Is it, is it now? Right? Uh, there is a horrible DVD of it out there that continuously sells and places like Amazon. And... Uh, it's got hundreds of reviews, four and a half stars. It's a completely botched version of the film. Right now, I'm presently involved with making a brand new digital version of the film um, and converting the soundtrack, which was originally stereo, now to 5.1 stereo. I'm recolor timing the picture and it's going to open again in theaters um, and then go to Blu-ray. And I'm doing that right now out in the valley at a place called Modern Video where upstairs they make the Playboy pornographic uh, stuff <laughs> and downstairs we make, uh, we color time videos and um, I also just finished mixing the track, which is fucking beautiful. <laughs> it's uh, 5.1 stereo. It's, it looks like the way I remember seeing every shot through the viewfinder, without scratches, without um, 
dirt, without splices. It's clean. The colors are correct, as I've always wanted them, and we could never achieve with 35 millimeter. Now with this process, it, it's actually like raising Lazarus from the dead. And the film is going to premiere at the Venice Film Festival on my birthday, August 29th. No gifts, please. <laughs> but, but just keep that date in mind, August 29th. <laughs> but no gifts. Uh, yes, it's called Sorcerer. The title might be all wrong, but that's what it's called. Uh, and, you know, so I'm leaving it. And uh, for me, uh, oh, we're also going to run it at CineFamily, which Darren told me. You guys know about CineFamily? Uh, they're going to run it for a week there in September. Fantastic. And, uh, uh, and then it'll go out in other theaters, and then next year a Blu-ray, which uh, this, is a this sort of thing almost never happens, as you know. That film was dead in 1977. I know, I remember. It, 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 <laughs> I, I remember when I first saw it, and I thought it, it was years after it came out. I mean, I was 10 when it, when it came out, and um, uh, I think I finally saw print at Paramount. Um, Hager showed it. Mm -hmm. just, he just had something, and he, and he put it up, and I walked out of that, and it was, we hadn't worked together yet, but uh, I was just, that's my favorite. <laughs> it is, to this day, it's my favorite of your films. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I love it, and I'm glad it's coming out of that gentleman first. Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell me a little bit, or maybe um, just talk about uh, how you came to work with uh, Dick Smith on Exorcist? Yes, he, when, when I decided I was going to direct The Exorcist, that is, the heads of Warner Brothers decided, uh, I immediately went to the best makeup artist in the country, who was Dick Smith, uh, who had started in television, actually, in live TV, but then went on and he did the makeup for things like Little Big Man and um, Brando's makeup and The Godfather, classic makeup. And I went to Dick, who lives in upstate New York, with the challenge of making a 12-year-old girl look like she was possessed by a demon. And we worked together for a long time on that. I actually didn't like Dick's first sketches. They were like pure horror makeup. And I felt that the girl's makeup, when she was possessed, should, first of all, be organic. Something that she had done to herself, disfigured herself. Uh, uh, because there's a scene in the novel and in the uh, film where you see her masturbating with a metallic crucifix and I thought why would she not have also used that sharp piece of metal to scar her face and so we then based the makeup on gangrenous scars and Dick went out and did some research he got a book on burn victims and how their face was gangrenous and disfigured. And we based Linda's makeup on that. And it took four hours every day to apply, and then over an hour to take off. All, the same with Max von Sydow, who has now, I see, grown into his makeup. <laughs> 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 
no, the, the, I wish I'd started the film now, because his makeup took four hours. He was 38 years old when he played Father Marin, and that's 40 years ago. And uh, he was four hours of makeup and an hour to take it off. And uh, this was true when we went to Iraq. Max was the only actor I took to Iraq. And in 130 degree Fahrenheit heat, at about three in the morning, he had to go into Dick Smith's tent and have his makeup applied every morning that we shot there. And we were there for quite a long time because Iraq was we had no diplomatic relations at all with Iraq at that time, not even a desk in an embassy. And um, uh, Iraq was at war with all of its neighbors, and while we were there, they were at war with Iran and Kuwait and uh, Syria to the north. They were at war within the country with the Kurdish people. And all of this was swirling around us while we were making this film of The Exorcist. And uh, there are a lot of stories about that period in this book that are pretty terrifying. Yes, sir? I guess this kind of requests along the, the sorcerer to Blu-ray kind of lines, but you know, one of my personal favorites has always been cruising, and one of the reasons is, and I cherish my VHS copy of it because there's a sound cue at the very end that, that's kind of associated with the murderer throughout that, that plays over the ending for the, for the hero character. And on the DVD, that sound cue was actually missing. And I just was curious, I mean, it's probably too nerdy and obscure a question, whether that was a decision you had made or whether that also kind of got swept up in the kind of, let's just, let's just do a kind of quick DVD version that they did years and years ago. I don't remember that. I honestly don't. I don't think I changed anything on that picture when we went to uh, a more accurate medium. Um, I don't. I added stuff. I don't think I. My memory of everything I've done in taking my films into the digital world is that we added stuff because you could hear more. So I, I will say this to you: no disrespect. A lot of people email me and stuff about changes I made to this and that which is in their head. It's not stuff we did. And I find that really interesting because I know that film lives in a different realm. We all see these films differently. You know, I remember seeing a film called All About Eve, which is a great sort of a women's film. It's one of my favorite films. It's one of the best scripts I've ever seen. And I watched that film endlessly. And at the time, it was a highly regarded film. But the main thing that came out of that picture was two scenes with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> you know, very little dialogue, whatever. But people said, who is that blonde woman? You know? and. That's what is mostly remembered by people. But I'm talking about people see films and they recompose them, you all do this, in your mind's eye. When I see films over and over again, which I do, I don't think I've seen a new film, I don't know, I, I don't know how many years it's been since I've really watched a, a new film, uh, except some obscure stuff, 
but I watch sort of the films that I love over and over again, and I, like you, I, where did that come from? Or I remember it this way or that way, and that was my own processing of the film. Yes, sir. Do you have any advice for filmmakers on how to balance art with commerce? Uh, how to ba No, it's, uh, well, you just have to follow your vision, which sounds like a line of bullshit. <laughs> but you guys can do something that I could never do. You can now, when I was younger, you can go out and buy an inexpensive video camera, shoot something, take it home, edit it on your home computer, put it on YouTube, and a whole bunch of people are going to see it. And I know guys who have gotten jobs from doing that. I had to go up through the ranks, as did most of my contemporaries. We had to take entry-level jobs in order to get the chance to use a camera and sound and, and cutting rooms and all of that. You don't, uh, young people don't need to do that anymore. All that stuff is there. You have no excuse. <laughs> you, you can't say the system's against me. They don't care about new uh, ideas. Well, that's true. They don't care about new ideas. But you can make your film. And you, you decide whether you want it to be more art or more commerce. Most of the film schools that I've been to where I've spoken and I've seen a lot of the films that they've made in film school, most of them seem to be copies of some commercial movie that's out there. You know, I don't see a lot of new stuff coming out of the film schools. I see a lot of imitative stuff. But my advice is, look, if you are lucky enough to get into the system, the chances are 20 million to one. If you get into the studio system, you're going to have to make commercial movies, and that settles the argument. You're going to have to make movies about vampires, werewolves, zombies, robots. robots that are comic books or video games. That's it. That's all. When I got in, it was a completely different menu. I mean, like, how would you like to go to the burger joint next door, and one day the only thing they're serving is sushi? Well, that's Hollywood today. It's not sushi, it's something else with an SH. But, but, uh, but the menu has changed. When I came up into the studio system, anything was possible. A film like Easy Rider, which defied the system and changed it for about 20 minutes, <laughs> then it went right back to, you know, uh, Sound of Music or something. <laughs> but it was actually Dr. Doolittle. Uh, came out the same year as The French Connection. So, whereas a lot of people say that The French Connection changed the Hollywood movie, it was out there with Dr. Doolittle, which was, uh, you know, uh, had its own loyal audience. But no, in my view, there are three films that changed American cinema. The first was Griffith's entire body of work at the turn of the 20th century, especially Birth of a Nation. That sort of gave birth to the Hollywood epic, the way that Hollywood 
wanted to tell stories in the early silent era. Um, there were other things going on that turned out to be more influential, like the little short films of Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton's work is over the moon to me. I fortunately never saw any of Buster Keaton's chase scenes before I directed one, or I never would have directed a chase scene. He did it all. Things I dreamt of doing, he accomplished in silent movies that he wrote, starred in, and directed. All of it. It was all dangerous as hell to do. They did it. He didn't have doubles. He did all this stuff. It's absolute genius. But, so, but Griffith changed the way movies are made. The next change was Citizen Kane in 1941, which showed the entire world of cinema that there was a, a different way of telling a story and that the story could embody mysteries that were not solved by any of the characters in the film, but were only made known to, to the audience and meant something different to everyone in the audience that saw it. You know, and he changed the way movies were written and photographed and directed and edited. His editor was Robert Wise, who became a great film director. The cameraman was Greg Toland, arguably the greatest cinematographer ever. And Wells used his collaborators to the fullest and changed film. And then the only other film that I think has changed cinema was Breathless, Jean-Luc Godard, and the jump cut, which is what you see now in everything. In, in a film today, if a shot is on the screen any longer than four seconds, the, the people that make it think the audience will get up and leave. You know, and that started with Breathless because Jean-Luc Godard, the French director who made Breathless, they had a very small budget. They had a non-budget. They were not using full rolls of film. They were using what we call short ends, which means like a, a roll of film is a thousand feet, is approximately 10 minutes of 35 millimeter. Uh, a guy making a movie would shoot maybe 800 feet of that, they'd break off the remaining 200, and very often, or is even 50 feet or 30 feet of usable film, and they'd give it to young filmmakers who would make short films or whatever. And Godard and his cameraman, a guy called Raoul Coutard, they took these short ends and spliced them together. They also took rolls of 35 millimeter still film which as you know, if you extend a roll of 35, it's not that long, it's, what, a few seconds maybe, right, yeah. if that. And they spliced all this stuff together and put it in the camera as, as negative, and they then shot breathless, and so the film jumps all over the place because of its limitations, and that became a style. You'd suddenly watch a shot of two people walking down the street and there'd be a jump cut that didn't match. And everything in Hollywood when I came up was about matching. If, a guy, if I, a guy in a long shot lifts this bottle with his left hand in a wide shot, he has to do it again in the close-up with his left hand. He can't suddenly decide, or couldn't then, to lift it with his right hand. 
Or if, if I'm looking from right to left at this gentleman, in my close-up I have to be looking from right to left as well. Breathless changed all of that. And now that's what you see in movies and on television. Jump cuts in all these sci-fi films even, but you see it on television, in Homeland. Uh, in particular, I remember a series called 24, you know, which had the shot changed every four seconds. And they, they would put three cameras on a character and jump cut him in the middle of, he's talking, saying something very quietly, or, or she is. So those three films, as far as I'm concerned, changed the way American cinema was made. I haven't seen anything of you since then since that have changed. That completely changed the game yeah. in a good way? In any way. Well, yeah, Star Wars. Star Wars, yeah, changed the films that people want to see, yeah. without a doubt. I mean, that just, it, it was a tsunami. It took everything with it, including Sorcerer, <laughs> which opened the same week. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, there's a great film uh, called Blade Runner, which yeah. failed in its time. It opened the same week as E.T. And Blade Runner was washed away until the advent of DVD and Blu-ray, where it has been now recognized on a broad scale as the masterpiece that it is. But it, was, it originally failed because everyone ran to see E.T. It's a, a great movie, but that too is a tsunami. I'm talking about the technique, though. Like, Star Wars is a stupid movie. I mean, let's admit it. It's not stylistically fantastic. You know, it's, it's, it is what it is. But it changed the... It's responsible for everything that's out there now. Yeah. Nothing, nothing like the three that you mentioned. No, not that I can think. Nothing of. like what? Nothing like the three that you mentioned. I mean, I don't think anything's come along since Breathless that has totally changed the style, te technique, the, right. in in that significant a way. No. But Star Wars did change the way the kind of films people want to see. Yes, Dan. We have our, we have one. Uh, time but not one Dan. Uh, Noel. One one last question before we start the signing. Yeah. That's be a good one. Yeah, it can't be. No stupid questions. <laughs> yes, I think you'll ask a good question. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on audio commentaries and how you can sort of like give some of your wisdom to like the next generation of filmmakers? Wisdom? <laughs> or, or I've done a lot of audio commentary for, for, for other films, not just my own. For like B pictures, like some of the films of Edgar Ulmer. You know, I, I've done... Uh, I, I did a commentary for the Leopard Man, uh, I, you know, and also the Godfather and uh, several other, you know, real masterpieces, as well as my own films. I I don't enjoy doing them, and I do them when I'm asked because I know that I'm told that other people like them. I don't get paid for them, so I, I just do them because I love those particular films. But I would never sit down and turn off the soundtrack of the movie and listen to some bloke giving me his thoughts about it. I might do that at the world's best hamburger bar <laughs> after the movie's over, you know. But I would never listen to an audio commentary while the movie's on. I mean, it goes against every instinct I have. 
I don't know why someone would do that. I don't know who really gives a damn about what I think. You, you all have your own opinions, which I, you know, either respect or don't respect. But uh, I don't want to hear the greatest guy who ever made a film, you know, say Robert Blake, let's say, or uh, O.J. Simpson or somebody like that. The great film artists like that. I wouldn't want to hear their commentary, you know, let alone my own. I don't want to hear Francis Coppola tell me about The Godfather. I just want to see the movie, you know. And uh, I have my own opinion about it, which is extremely high <laughs> about The Godfather. Yes, sir. I really hate the horse race thing that goes on every weekend with like Stickle Elite 2 specific rim. Like, what are your thoughts? About what? The horse race mentality film not released on weekends. Box office results every week. You know, like oh, we never had that. That's hard. That's well, everyone seems to care because when I was making films, we never knew the box office of anything, including our own films. And those of us who had a percentage would generally get cheated because that was the name of the game. But we didn't open the newspaper and see, oh, this film underperformed. It only took in $50 million. <laughs> you know, and now that's all they write about. There's nobody or very few people really writing about the content of films or you know, anything important like some of the great critics of the past. They write about how much money the film took in. It's back to your question. It's all about commerce. I decided to quit filmmaking uh, <laughs> <laughs> the last 10 minutes. <laughs> now, if I were you, I'd go into digital. I, I wouldn't become a director. All these films are made on computers now. You know? A guy, two guys won the Academy Award as cinematographers from computer imaged movies. Yeah. You know, so the, what we think of as the art of cinema is deader than Kelsey's. <laughs> it's, it's just gone with the wind and the snows of yesteryear. It's over. Is it going to come back? No. <laughs> it is over. Audiences have been conditioned to another thing. It's like when I was a young kid, you'd go to a hamburger joint and it was a, you know, there were great hamburgers. I mean, <laughs> fantastic. Now they go to McDonald's and that's what cinema is. It's McDonald's all the way. Now, that, which isn't to say an occasional great film doesn't slip by somehow, usually from Serbia or, uh, you know, even Iran and Egypt and other places where they are making personal films about their lives. But it, that happens so seldom in this country now. It's all, how do you define art from commerce? You don't. Commerce won. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.